Well, church, it's a delight to be here on our second week of our series focusing on prayer and fasting. And on the first day of a call for us as a church to engage in a week of prayer and fasting. You may have seen one of these cards along the way uh, lay out for us starting tonight at 6.30, 7.45. The next five nights, we will have a time together to seek the Lord and to intentionally find delight in feasting on Jesus. Well, it's only fitting that we pray as we turn our attention to what God's word has to say on this topic of fasting. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord Jesus, what a delight it is to be able to gather and even to make room in our hearts and our lives so we might feast on you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for giving us, giving us access to the throne of grace and giving us a means where we might turn our attention, even using the rhythms of our body, to fully devote ourselves to you and the joy we have in you. Would you help us now as we turn our attention to your word? Would you allow us to fully treasure you, to delight in all that we have in you, and to find the feast that is you? We pray this in your mighty name. Amen. Tuesday night through Sunday night this last week is called Yom Kippur, if you are in the Jewish community. If you know someone who's particularly religious of a Jewish heritage, they likely abstain from all food and drink for that 24-hour period. In our Christian verbiage, we might know that as the Day of Atonement, holiday going all the way back to the Old Testament, still practiced today. By no means, though, are the Jewish members of our community the only people religious people that have a form of fasting in their lives. You can find Buddhists who fast. You can find Hindus who fast. Maybe you're familiar with Muslims and the 40 days of fasting they do during Ramadan. Fasting is common. It's ubiquitous. It's all over the place. So much so that it's even in non-religious settings these days. I was doing a good bit of Googling related to fasting this week. And uh, the way ad tracking and stuff works on the internet, they, the internet decided that I needed to know about all sorts of weight loss techniques <laughs> that involve fasting. One of the most popular is called intermittent fasting. Turns out whether you're religious and believe in God or not, fasting is in. Yet for all of that, as a Christian, we need to ask the question, so what? Who cares if other religions fast? Who cares if it's good for losing weight? As a Christian, should I fast? This week, as the Lord allowed me, I bumped into various people. I just took a little bit of an informal survey. Uh, how many people, I wondered, had con strong convictions on fasting? How many of them had heard a sermon on fasting? Turns out very few. How many of them knew a Bible verse that could say, I should fast or I shouldn't? Also very few. Turns out a lot of evangelical Christians, at least in our circles, are a lot like me. This has not been an emphasis of discipleship. And when fasting comes up, I have images that come to my mind of things like Catholicism, practices like Lent. I have an undercurrent of grieving, maybe of denying of self, some sort of austerity. And, and the whole thing just makes me a little bit uncomfortable as a Christian who believes all he has is Jesus. 
Well, I hope this morning that you will come along with me on a journey that the Lord's been doing in my own life because I've become convinced that fasting is something a Christian not only should do, but should be delighted to do. Because as uh, Pastor John Piper put it so pointedly, fasting for a Christian is feasting on Jesus. Fasting for a Christian is feasting on Jesus. So this morning we'll go through what I believe is the biblical basis of why we as Christians on the other side of the cross should fast, as well as the motivations behind it. We'll do it in three sections. First, we'll answer the question, should we fast? Spoiler alert, the answer is yes. (laughs) Second, we will answer the question, why should we fast? And we'll see it's connected to this jubilant feasting on Jesus. Why should we fast? Because Jesus is our great feast. And third, how should we fast? We'll get practical. We'll get down to how we, particularly as a church, on the front end of a week of prayer and fasting, should go about this spiritual discipline of fasting. And all this, I hope you will become convinced with me that fasting should not be something Christians avoid. It should be something we delight to do because Jesus and feasting on Jesus is a worthwhile endeavor. Let's begin looking at that first question, should we fast? I need to find a term first off. When we talk about fasting in the Bible, fasting is referring to the idea of abstaining from food or drink. When you see it show up in your Bible, fasting, that that is what it refers to, abstaining from food or drink. I'll, I'll nuance that and give some broader categories later, but for now, just know in the Bible that when we talk about fasting, we're talking about someone intentionally not eating or not drinking for the sake of devotion to God. So the question is, should a Christian do it? And I hope to demonstrate that they should. Now, if I were to ask, where in the Bible is there a command that you should fast? A thou shalt fast type of verse. You'd find that there's only one event, it's repeated three times, where God tells his people, you must fast. And that is the Yom Kippur we just talked about, the Day of Atonement. Uh, It shows up twice in Leviticus and once in Numbers. We'll just read Numbers chapter 29, verse 7. On the tenth day of this seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation and afflict yourselves. That's a stand-in for fasting, not eating, not drinking, thereby bringing bodily difficulty or affliction. You shall afflict yourselves. And then it goes on to list out other things they do as a part of that, not working and other things related to it. Again, that gets repeated twice in Leviticus. This once a year, time where God's people are to seek him, to be reminded of their need for the cleansing of sin. And as a part of that grieving over their sin and turning to God in repentance, they are to fast. Now, if you were to ask the question slightly differently, though, okay, you have this one-time thing, the Day of Atonement, that we're told we must fast for. But what about in the New Testament? What about for a disciple of Jesus? Is there anywhere where a New Testament Christian is told they must fast? Well, the answer is that there's no direct command anywhere. You will not find a verse that says you must do this as a Christian. But there are what you would call implicit commands. That would be, they are things that assume that Christians will in fact fast and that that is in fact a good thing. 
uh, in Matthew chapter 6, where during the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is comparing what a disciple of his will look like versus the hypocritical Pharisees, and he talks about fasting, and he has this one little line in there. He says, when you fast, not if you fast, when you fast, that you're not supposed to do it the way the hypocrites do. We'll come back to that. But the most important of all of these commands is the second one, just a few chapters later, Matthew 9, verse 15. We're going to focus the second half of this verse, and we'll back up and we'll read the whole section together a little later. First, just notice what Jesus says. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So there's a time where Jesus' disciples won't fast, and we'll see the reasons why in a second. But there will come a day where they will. And the way that's written, uh, there will come a day, it's implied that there, this is an ongoing thing that's going to happen. It's not a particular day. It is all the days that are going to come after this event. So according to these two implications that Jesus gives, these two implied commands, Jesus says we should fast. You should think of these as a sort of prophecy by Jesus saying, my disciples will fast. And as the sweep of the church has unfolded in history, brothers and sisters, Jesus' prophecy has come true. God's people, Christians, down through the ages have fasted. You can see this back as early as Acts. There's two times where the early church is described as fasting. The first is in Acts 13, 24. Acts 13, starting in verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So in this particular example, the church is gathered. They are worshiping God. They are praying. They are fasting as part of their worship to Jesus and in so doing, in, that, in the midst of this, the Holy Spirit speaks and he tells them, you are to open a new frontier for the gospel. You're to send Paul and Barnabas and they're going to go and they will end up bringing the gospel to places it's never gone before. There's another time, just one chapter later, where you see the early church fasting again. This time it has to do with raising up leaders inside the church, elders or shepherds in Acts 14, 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. What we see here is a pattern in the early church. They saw fasting as an appropriate part of their worship. They were living out the prediction Jesus gave back in Matthew 9, showing that his disciples would fast. So, at the most basic level, should Christians fast? The answer is yes. And yet, if we just stop there, there would be so many dis misunderstandings, so many ditches to fall in. We need to ask a follow-up question. Why should they fast? And that brings us to our second point. Why should we fast? Why should we fast? If we don't get the motivation right, then we would just be like any other religious group that's out there. We'd be fasting for religious purposes, and yet maybe even contradicting the gospel by our fasting. We need to pay attention to these verses in Matthew 9 where Jesus shows us why his disciples will fast. So we'll see, it's very different from the motivation for how any other sort of religious fasting 
is uh, for the motivation for any other religious fasting. Look with me in verse 14. When the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now, the context of this question that Jesus gets is that Jesus is early in his ministry. He started to have some run-ins with the religious leaders in his day. The the Pharisees were realizing that this new rabbi was not going to line up with their expectations. He's actually partying with tax collectors and sinners, the scandal of it all. But now there's a question that comes not from this opposed religious group. It comes from a group that seemed a little more aligned with Jesus, John the Baptist's disciples. And they say, Jesus, it seems like we and the Pharisees are on the same page on this question of should a religious person fast? We all fast, but your disciples don't. What gives? Now, they're probably referring to the uh, record we have of Pharisees in that day that would fast twice a week. Uh, It was an expectation that if you were religious in that day, that was an expression of your devotion to God. You would refrain from eating or drinking. Uh, There was a corporate element to it. You would come together if you took part in this fast. It was kind of a who's who religiously. And so it would be obvious if the followers of Jesus don't participate in this weekly rhythm that something's different. Well, in Jesus' answer, he reveals to us What is distinctive about Christian fasting against all other religious fasting? He does it in the, uh, his answer is three short parables or metaphors, extended metaphors, that all have the same thread running through them. That a new era is here, that some things are only appropriate during a certain time, and a new time has come, and the Messiah's coming to this earth. The first one is that of a wedding. And this is not a hard one for us to get because even over 2,000 years, weddings have this much the same among them. Weddings are times of celebration, not times for mourning. If you showed up at a wedding, you were expecting to see rose petals and wonderful decorations and cute kids holding rings on pillows. You know, weddings have lots to eat and there's laughter and if there are tears, they are tears of joy. Weddings celebrate the bringing together of love and they celebrate the possibility of new life, of children being brought through the marital union. If you walked into a wedding and everyone was wearing black and the music that the bride walked down to was a dirge in the minor key and there was all sort of weeping but there was no joy involved, you would know something is wrong with this wedding. A wedding is not a time for mourning. A wedding is a time for celebration. Jesus is saying that there will be a time for the sort of grief that comes with fasting. Fasting so often in the Old Testament is connected with grief. You can think of in Esther when the people see that they, they may actually be wiped out totally. They seek the Lord in prayer and fasting and there's a grief to their asking the Lord to, to bring deliverance. Jesus is saying this is not an appropriate way for his disciples to act as long as Jesus himself is here. Now notice there's a shade of something here. Through the Old Testament, God describes himself as Israel's husband, that Israel is like his wife. 
For Jesus to describe himself as the bridegroom or the, the groom at the wedding is a way of identifying himself with God, but certainly as a way of saying that he uniquely represents this new thing God is doing in this world. And this new thing makes mourning, as long as Jesus is here, totally inappropriate. Now, that does leave a question, though. How long would that season go on for? Well, he says the time will come when the bridegroom is taken away, and then they will fast. So the, 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 that phrase that the bridegroom is taken away is surely an allusion to the cross. Uh, the way that's written in Greek, it has the idea of being violently ripped away. You can think of how the Messiah was taken by men, how he was placed by Romans up on a cross, taken away from his disciples in that way. On that day, there would be grief and fasting would be appropriate. And yet, if we just stop there, it would sound like Jesus is saying, well, between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, fasting's appropriate. But what about all the days after Easter Sunday? Well, notice the way that he says, says it there. Verse seven, uh, 15. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. He doesn't say on that singular day they will fast. The way Matthew records, it's very intentional. It's open-ended. Then they will fast. We see that lived out throughout the ages as Christians have found it appropriate to fast in connection with Jesus. There are two more metaphors Jesus used. I'll, I'll just go through them quickly. Again, they both have the same idea behind them. There's a time and a place. Right now is not the time for fasting, but there's a day coming when there will be a time for fasting. Uh, the first is this, uh, this patch that's put on a garment. Um, you can think of your trusty set of jeans that have been worn so much that they have holes that are no longer stylish. They're just plain old holes. And so you decide you want to patch them, but if you get a piece of cloth that hasn't been washed a few times, it hasn't shrunk the way the cloth on your jeans has through the wash over and over. So if you tie it tightly to, if you stitch it tightly to the jeans, and then you put it through the wash, well, that patch will shrink and it'll pull on the hole and it'll tear off and it'll make a bigger hole. There's a time and a place. You can't use the wrong cloth in the wrong setting. Same idea when it comes to new wine. There's Old Testament imagery we don't have time to get into, but the idea there is that if you take unfermented wine, new wine, if you put it in a container that can't stretch, animal skins that are too old, then it will just break the container as the gases are let off and the pressure builds. No, you need new wine skins for new wine. The idea of all of this is God has done something new. There's a, a new revelation from God, a, a new forgiveness from sins, and a new representative in his Messiah, Jesus. That's going to change some things. And specifically here, the application Jesus is making is into this question of fasting. So all of this is to say things have shifted. So what is the appropriate way for a Christian to be motivated toward fasting? If it's no longer having to do with grief, if it's no longer having to do with unfulfilled promises of lacking, what is the proper motivation for a Christian to fast? There are two that I will look at this morning. Christian fasting should be celebratory. It should be something we celebrate what we have in Jesus. And it should be craving 
craving for more of what we already have in Jesus. See, Christian fasting looks both ways, both back to the cross and forward to the day Jesus comes back and our relationship with him is consummated in his fullness. To, to illustrate the difference between the fasting in the Old Testament and fasting in the New Testament, think of it this way. Uh, maybe during World War II, so many soldiers, they, they went off to war. Many of them wrote back to their sweethearts, wrote letters about wanting to come home and get married and think of that longing there was there. It's an appropriate longing looking forward to a marriage day. But think about how it would be slightly different for a soldier that got married and then immediately went off to war. No longer is it just looking forward to this blessing. Now it is you've already tasted this blessing. You already know the goodness of this relationship. And now you are longing, you're yearning, you're craving that relationship to be back in its fullness. So it is for the Christian. We look back, we celebrate the feast we've already had in Jesus, the bread of life. And yet we yearn, we crave the fullness of Jesus to be brought to this earth and for our joy to be full in him. This, let me show you how this could come out in fasting. You can crave Jesus as you pray for wisdom. You can crave Jesus as you fast and pray for wisdom. You remember that all the treasures of God and all the wisdom of God is here in Christ Jesus, that you have already had that in a measure. And yet there's so much that you need guidance for in this world. So you fast, you pray, and you ask Jesus, guide me in your will. Or but what about on mission? You know, in a sense, the kingdom of Christ has come to this earth. It's broken in. You know that the kingdom has come in a sense, and yet you also know that the fullness of the kingdom is not yet here. There's so many places where the gospel is not yet preached, where people don't call on the name of Jesus. So we pray. We, we pray remembering the goodness of being brought into the kingdom of God. And yet we also pray that the advance of the gospel would continue until Jesus comes back. Or what about Intimacy. You know the goodness of what it means to have the abundant life in Jesus if you've trusted in him. You, you know that. You, you celebrate that as you fast and pray. And yet there are seasons where you're dry. There's times where he feels so, so far away. And, and so you fast and you pray and you ask him to give, give you just a, a renewed sense of the life that he's brought to you. And what about Endurance. So much in this life seems wrong and it seems to go on for so, so long. You fast, you pray. You remember that at the cross, Jesus guaranteed that the wrongs would be righted. And yet you look forward to the day, craving the day that justice is done in this world and for the strength to reach that day faithful in Jesus. We do all these things not with grief, but with joy. We celebrate what we have in Jesus and we fast and we pray to feast on him, to enjoy the fact that Jesus is all we need. So let me give you some implications of what this doesn't mean related to fasting. Sometimes you use a negative, you can figure out the positive a little more easily. This means Christian fasting is not manipulating God. You are not earning credits that you can cash in in prayer. You're not getting leverage on God to get him to move where he does not want to move. 
you are not pestering God until he just gives in and gives up. Fasting is not you manipulating God in any way. Second, fasting is not for the earthly benefits. It may be true that you might lose weight if you abstain from eating and drinking for a time. That is not the point of Christian fasting, though. If you do it mainly for the health benefits, the spiritual side of it will not be beneficial to you. Uh, Jesus teases this out in the social realm. In Matthew 6, where he's giving instructions on fasting, he tells them, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't do it to be seen. If you fast and you do it in such a way that it's obvious you're fasting, then your reward is people applauding you. If we fast as Christians, thinking that some earthly benefit we get from fasting is the main idea, then our fasting is sub-Christian. Third, as part of that, also, just let me just say that fasting does help in terms of discipline. Um, as you learn to restrain your bodily urges, there is a good effect to discipline, but that is not, again, the main motivation a Christian has to fast. If that is the only thing that you're trying to do, that is the same sort of motivation lots of other religions have for fasting. That is a sub-Christian motivation for fasting. Third, we don't fast out of grief, but out of gladness. Remember, the wedding feast has started, and one day you're going to sit down at the table, and your joy will be full. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, all this talk about a thing you do that gives you some sort of spiritual closeness to God may lead to a very common misunderstanding people have about Christianity. They think that your relationship with God, to get in with God, you just have to earn enough or do enough for God for him to accept you. Maybe you clean up your life enough, or maybe you pray enough, or maybe you make sure that you don't do enough bad, you avoid doing enough bad things that God looks on you favorably. But the, the message of the Bible is ex actually the exact opposite. It's that you are so far away from God that your rebellion and sin against God is so great that no amount of living well or following rules could ever make up for it. As a matter of fact, what you need is the very thing that this man Jesus only can provide. What you need is someone else to pay the penalty for your sin. That's what we Christians believe allows us to be in right relationship with God is that Jesus, 2,000 years ago, was murdered on a wooden cross and that wasn't just a random act of injustice. That was Jesus paying the penalty for our sins, God punishing him in our place. And that Jesus tells you, if you would just receive me, if you would believe I did that for you, then you'll have full forgiveness of sins. And yes, you would start to spiritually feast. You would find full joy that only Jesus can give you in relationship with God. If you don't understand some of that or you are feeling the need to be right with God, there'll be people up front that would love to pray with you after the service. Come here, come find how you can take part in the feast that is being in relationship with Jesus. I hope you're convinced by now that Christians should fast because fasting is actually feasting on Jesus. But that leaves the very large question open. How do we actually do it? Especially as we as a church have dedicated a whole week to prayer and fasting. What does it actually mean? Well, I hope in this last section to make this as practical as possible and to make clear what it is we will be doing together as we fast. Let me just reiterate on the front end, 
on this third point, how should we fast? That fasting is primarily about abstaining from food and drink. That is the main thing the Bible lays out for us as fasting. When we talk about fasting, that's usually what we're talking about. And yet, there is a sense where fasting is broader than that. This afternoon, maybe you could go and study 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if you have time. In verse 5, the Apostle Paul speaks of a sort of fast that married couples might do about marital relations. He says that for a time, it's okay to stop the normal marital relations you would have if you, in turn, devote yourselves to prayer during that time. That's a sort of fast. Now, if you tease out that line of logic far enough, you end up in the place of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a preacher in England and a physician, and he understood well the limitations of the human body, and so I think he very helpfully uh, teases out something that other Christians have come to the conclusion, that fasting can be about more than just abstaining from food or drink. Dr. Jones said this, Fasting, if we conceive of it truly, must not be confined to the question of food or drink. Fasting should really be made to include abstinence from anything which is legitimate in and of itself for the sake of some special spiritual purpose. There are many bodily functions which are right and normal and perfectly legitimate, but which for special, peculiar reasons and certain circumstances should be controlled. That is fasting. The idea Dr. Jo uh, Lloyd-Jones has here is that there will be some seasons of life where it is not possible for you to refrain from eating. Maybe if you're pregnant, maybe if your doctor tells you that you cannot go long periods of time for medical reasons. It could be a, a past sinful habit that you might be prone to. It could be a stumbling block for you to put yourself in that spot. And if you're in that spot, then there are other avenues for you to abstain, to make room in your life so that you can enjoy the feast of Jesus. Maybe it's social media, keeping yourself away from the endless feed on Twitter and Instagram and taking that time and turning it to Jesus or any number of other ways. We'll get into some of those in a second. Now, this leads to a really important question, though. How, how is it that you know if something is a legitimate thing to fast from or not? Not everything is a legitimate thing to fast from. So let me give you four questions you can ask yourself about anything that you might desire to fast on. Four questions that would hopefully guide you to what's an appropriate fast and what isn't. First, does God approve? Is this something that God approves of a Christian doing? If not, then abstaining from doing it isn't fasting, it's just obeying. <laughs> so it does no good to say, I am going to fast from having road rage on my way to church every Sunday, right? The drivers around me will no longer know how terrible they are for this period of time. No, that's just obeying Jesus' command to be salt and light. Uh, it's no good to take something that a Christian should refrain from simply because of obedience to Jesus and say, I will abstain from it for a season of fasting. That's not a fast. That's just obedience. Second, ask yourself, is this something that I can abstain from? Is it actually something I can abstain from? Again, there's sometimes medical reasons why you can't. Maybe your job prevents you from fasting during certain periods. 
maybe it's something that it just doesn't lend itself toward a season of abstaining from. You can't fast from breathing. Sorry, it's just not going to work out. Third, will I miss it? Will I miss it? What we choose to abstain from needs to be close enough to our hearts. It needs to be close enough to what we value most that it will create space for us to be able to redirect toward Jesus. If it's not something you will miss, then it's not something to fast from. It does no good to say, I will fast from exercise if you don't exercise regularly and love exercise. It needs to be something that you will miss. And let me just say that this is one point where the rhythms of your body make food and drink an especially appropriate type of thing to fast from. I think that's why the Bible focuses there. It's because you, you can't ignore the fact that you will miss eating lunch. I guarantee you, you will miss it. And the reminder you have in your stomach as it growls is a reminder that you need to feast on Jesus. Fourth thing, can I redirect it? Can I redirect it? Is it possible if I refrain from this thing, will it give me some time, some energy, some money that I can redirect toward Jesus? There are some things that if you abstain from your life, they just get swallowed up by something else. Will this create a void that you can allow only Jesus to fill? Now, I certainly think social media could fit into those four questions for some of us. For some of us, that will be our leisure time reading or watching Netflix. But ask yourself, is this really a fast? Now, realize also that the role conscience needs to play in all this. I can't stand from the front and tell you, you must fast on these parameters for, for th from this thing for this amount of time. It, to do that would be uh, malpractice as a spiritual doctor. There are different types of fasts even in the, in the Bible. There are complete fasts where people don't eat or drink for a period of time. There are partial ones where they abstain from certain foods or certain meals for a period of time. There are short fasts just for a day, just for a few moments. There, there are fasts that extend for weeks and months. Jesus in the wilderness, 40 days. That's a long time. None of them are less legitimate from each other. What matters is the heart and the devotion behind them and the resolve as a Christian to use the space created to feast on Jesus. So maybe you're struggling with all of this. How do I actually put this all together in my own life? Let me, let me just say one of the easiest, most obvious ways to do that over the next five days would be to skip dinner and come to our prayer and fasting nights. If you've been to any of our prayer meetings, you'll know what to expect. You'll be together with other believers. We'll spend time praying. We'll send, spend time praising God. And you'll be with a group of believers that are all fasting from something, in an effort to make room in their hearts and in their lives to focus and feast on Jesus. If you don't know where to start, this is a great place to start. Just skip dinner and come to as many of these nights as you can. Now, I know that not everyone can make it to every night. Make it to as many as you can. Uh, but maybe you're in a spot where you can't drive in the evenings or because of a work situation, you can't be there. Let me encourage you to participate any way you can. Um, maybe as a parent, it seems impossible to go without eating while you're having to feed kids and they're just on top of you constantly. There's no way you can make it to this thing. Uh, we do have childcare, by the way, if that helps, but I know it doesn't help for everyone. And if you're in that spot, maybe you take that precious 30 minutes after the kids are in bed 
and you're not so exhausted that you have to go to bed yet. Maybe you take that most precious golden 30 minutes and you, you use that time to pray and seek Jesus and feast on him. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's only a lunch you can carve out. Instead of eating, you go to your car and you turn on some Christian music and you pull out your membership directory and you, you just pray for the people in your church. And you just ask God to, to give them more of the joy that they should have in Jesus. Realize how important and fitting this is for us to do together as a church. You think of where we are in our life cycle as a church. In April 1 of next year, we're going to be independent, self-governing. There's a, a whole lot that goes into that. There's a whole lot of things we need wisdom for. and We need God's help in it for, to endure and to be faithful in. What better time for us to intentionally use our church calendar to sacrifice it for the sake of making room to feast on Jesus together. For all of us, regardless of where we may find ourselves and how we engage in this practice of feasting on Jesus by fasting from good things that God has given us, let's remember that the heart is what matters behind this. It's not just about being harsh to your body. It's not like how the other religions do fasting. No, this is a way for us to make room to feast on Jesus. There should be a joy as we do this. So brothers and sisters, I do hope you would come to our prayer and fasting meetings as much as you are able. If not, wherever you are, participate as the Lord leads you. And, and let this be a time where you remind yourself that you have all you need in Jesus. We spoke about the Day of Atonement at the beginning of the sermon. That is certainly a, a reason, even a good reason, to regularly fast. And yet as Christians, think about how much more we have reason to put off legitimate pursuits for the sake of Christ. The Day of Atonement spoke of forgiveness. And yet it was a forgiveness that needed to be repeated week, uh, year after year. We know of a day of atonement, a once-for-all sacrifice where our sins were wiped away and we were brought to the banquet table of God, to a wedding festival to feast on Jesus. Brothers and sisters, is there any more reason we need to fast from that which is good, to have that which is best, our Savior Jesus? Let's pray.